scripture reading tonight will be from Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, verses 13 through 15. It will be found on page 914 in the Pew Bibles. Acts chapter 6, verse 13. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Good evening. Um, before I get started, I just wanted to tell you thank you again for the support that you as a congregation provide me, both supporting me as a student, but also with the cards and the words of encouragement that you all give me. Uh, people often ask me what it's like at Bear Valley, and my first answer is always that it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy the work that I do there, and it wouldn't be at all possible without the support that you at Katie provide me. So thank you all for that, and I love you all for the support that you have extended to me. It's said that history is written by the victors. When a conqueror takes a space, they're the ones that when they write about the things that took place there determine who we look at as the good guys and as the bad guys. When we look back at the American Revolution, we look at the patriots that fought against the British Empire as the good guys that were standing up for their rights. When we look back at the Civil War, we see the Union as the good guys fighting against the bad guys, the Confederates, and likewise we look at the Allies as the good guys over the Axis. Now, in some of those cases, it was probably rightly so that we see some of them as the good guys, but the point is that history is written by the victors. And to be on the right side of history is to be the good guys. So when we think about that spiritually, in the spiritual war that we are fighting, we know that Christians are going to be the victors because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. So how do we end up on the right side of history when in, in eternity, people look back at the events that took place here in our lives now. And that's the question we're going to be answering today. And the answer to that question is that we have to trust the plan. To be on the right side of history is to trust the plan. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches a sermon looking at the history of God's people and shows us who really is and who really isn't on the right side of history. Uh, Stephen is made a deacon of the Lord's Church in Acts chapter 6, is given a miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit, and then is going and preaching and performing signs to confirm the word. And it says that in Acts chapter 6 verse 10 that the Jewish leaders that saw him were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And because of that, they induced men to bear false witness against him. They drag him before a council, uh, the council in Jerusalem of the religious leaders and the Jewish elite at the time, um, and they ask him a key question. And this question is something we need to remember when we look at this whole sermon because it really puts into context exactly what it is that he's saying. And the question begins in verse 13 of chapter 6. And put forward a false witness who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. That's the question that we need to remember when we look at this sermon. But before we get into the, the actual body of the sermon itself, let's consider a few perspectives just to further contextualize it for ourselves. The first one is that of the Jewish elite that he is speaking to. 
There are two parts to this question. The first part is that of what about the temple? What's going to happen to the temple? To the Jewish elite, the temple is their power center. Pretty much all of Judaism at this time revolved around going to the temple. It's what made global Judaism at the time all united under a single uh, power center being these people here. So at certain feast times, everybody in the entire world, every Jew, would have to travel to Jerusalem to go and see the temple. It was the unifying force for Judaism. And then the laws and the customs are their method of influence. This council, as we understand in the Gospels, we see Jesus talking about how they have perverted the law of God into being what they want it to be, is their method of control over the people, uh, the common Jew. They would use it to determine the way that they need to live, determine the standards by which the, the Jewish council would judge them, essentially, and that, that was how they had their influence. So it represents their, the, essentially their power and control in the world and their status there. To us, though, since we're not Jewish council members, uh, these things can represent something very similar. The temple is like something physical and material that we hold dear to ourselves, something that we lift up as being important, but really is of this world. And then the customs and laws can be ideals that we hold, uh, political beliefs that we have, just anything that we really believe and hold true to ourselves, but isn't from and of God. That's ultimately different from something that God has set for us and then is a distraction from it. So with these perspectives and with this question in mind, let's take a look at Jewish history through Stephen's sermon as it, shows, as it serves to show who is on the right side of history and the way they stay on the right side of history is to trust the plan. Stephen's sermon shows this in three primary sections and that's the way we're going to be breaking down his sermon. The first section is the right side of history. It starts in chapter 7 verse 2 after the question is asked in verse 1 and uh, extends all the way to the end of verse 25. And Stephen breaks down his sermon in a series of character studies. The first character that he looks at is Abraham. Now, Abraham trusted God's plan. We see in verses 2 and 3 that God, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham and he, when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Abraham was told to get up and leave his country and go somewhere that God was going to show him. He doesn't really know where he's going, and he doesn't really understand what it is that God has in store for him, but he knows that God has a plan for him, and he trusts the plan. And because of that, he gets up and he leaves, just as God tells him that he needs to do. Abraham trusted the plan. Next, in verse 5, we see that Abraham trusted the plan, and God is describing to him that he's moving to a country. Stephen explains it's the country the Jews are living in now, and he says in verse 5, but he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, and yet, even when he had no child, he, God, promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. So, Abraham was promised an inheritance in the land that he was in right then that he would never receive. His descendants were going to be the ones that inherited the promised land, but Abraham would never have a foot of land, which means that Abraham was trusting the plan when he would never even live to see the promise that God made him to fulfillment. He had to trust that something was going beyond his lifetime, something that he would never actually see come to fruition was what was going to happen. And that takes an immense amount of faith. 
Sometimes we don't really know what it is that God has at work. We know that he has commands for us and we understand what we need to do, but we re really don't see why. We don't see the point. And we need to be willing, like Abraham was, to stand up and to go and do what God has us to do, regardless of whether or not we know the end, regardless of whether or not we're even going to see the work that we do to its fulfillment, because it's most important that we trust God's plan and that God's plan happens, and that we are on the right side of history by trusting that plan. Next, we see that Abraham obeyed. We see this specifically in verse 8, where uh, God gives Abraham the covenant of circumcision, uh, it says that he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. So Abraham circumcises himself. When his son is born on the eighth day, he circumcises Isaac, which shows us that Abraham trusted the plan to the point of obedience. When we trust God and we trust the plan that he has for our lives, that produces an obedience that we're supposed to have. And we see that exemplified in Abraham. Abraham was given a task to do, a faith to hold, and he held that faith, and he performed those tasks to the best of his ability. Abraham trusted, and God made promises to him. The next character that Stephen looks at is Joseph, and Joseph trusted in a lot of different situations. In verse 8, it says that Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Joseph is one of the patriarchs, and it says that Joseph's 11 brothers became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. And that means that Joseph's life wasn't easy. Joseph's brothers, if you remember the story, was beaten because they were jealous of him and the favor that he found in their father's eyes, thrown into a pit, and then sold into slavery for Egypt. Joseph's life wasn't easy, and Joseph was put into some pretty difficult circumstances. But Joseph trusted the plan that God had for his life, and he understood that there was a greater purpose that he was serving. He may not have known all the ins and outs of it, but he knew that God was doing, going to take care of him, and that's because he trusted the plan. So, Joseph trusted the plan through tribulations. And then, in ver the end of verse 9 and into verse 10, it says, Yet God was with him, and rescued him from all of his afflictions, and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all of his household. Joseph was blessed because he trusted the plan. God took him out of a bad situation that he found himself in and gave him position and power and authority over the superpower of the world at the time. He made him one of the most influential people in the world because he trusted the plan. And the reason that God needed him to be an influential person and lifted him up like that, we can see in verses 11 through 15. There was a famine that came over Egypt and Canaan, which is where uh, the patriarchs, Jacob and his sons, lived. And they didn't have any means of getting food. But because Joseph was given power and influence in Egypt, he was able to store up grain and able to feed his family when they came and visited Egypt looking for food. Because God lifted him up, because Joseph trusted the plan, God was able to use him to keep the promise that he made to Abraham. Remember, God made a promise to Abraham that his descendants were going to be the ones that inherited the promised land, which means that his descendants have to stay alive. So Joseph, because he was given this influence and power, then keeps those descendants alive and makes sure that God's promise that he made is a promise that God keeps. When we're put into hard situations and we trust God's plan, he's going to lift us up. 
and he's going to make sure that we are rewarded for that. Sometimes that may not be in this life, but ultimately we need to remember that God is going to be taking care of us. And as long as we're working towards his ends and his goals, he's going to use us to fulfill the things that he has to get done. In this case, what he had to get done was protecting the Jewish people so that they could inherit the promised land. And he used Joseph to protect the Jewish people so that they could inherit that promised land. What I want to emphasize here is that God keeps working to fulfill his promise that he made to Abraham. We see this in verse 17 of Acts chapter 7. But as the time of promise was approaching, which God has assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. God is working. He brings the pe his people to Egypt and they grow safely, and they prosper, and they multiply, and they're, they're thriving. These people are being well taken care of here. And because of that, they're more able to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham. And then there's a new king in Egypt. And the new king in Egypt doesn't really have the same favor for the Jewish people that the previous one did. So he treats them badly. And then God raises up Moses, the next character that Stephen studies, as a deliverer for God's people. So, starting in verse 20, we see, It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after it had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and in deeds. Now, all of this goes to show us one thing. Moses was the man. Moses could get whatever it was done that needed to be done. He was well-educated. He was raised in the best place that the world really had to offer in the best country that there was, raised up to be able to accomplish whatever it was that God needed him to be able to do. If anybody was going to be able to deliver the Israelites from the oppressors in Egypt, it was going to be Moses. Moses was blessed. And then we see that Moses trusted the plan enough for him to step up and act and defend God's people. In verse 24, uh, we see, And when he saw one of them, one of his brethren, being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. Moses understood that God's plan was to bring the Jewish people out of Israel. And because of that, he, was, he had enough faith to stand up for God's people and to act as necessary. Now, whether or not killing this man was the right thing for him to do is up for debate, but ultimately the, the trust that Moses had in God's plan led him to act for God, which is an action that we should be able to take as well. We need to have the confidence to stand up and act for God. In verse 25, it says, And he, Moses, supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Uh, the Greek word for understand here is a concept that basically means that the, the understanding they needed to have would challenge their normal way of thinking. When we have to understand God's plan and the things that are going on, it's challenging because we have to give up the perspectives that the world gives us. When we look at the Bible and look at things in an internal perspective, that's not something that the world would ever encourage us to do. In a worldly mindset, we look at the here and now and the things that are going to go on within our lives, but there's never any sort of eternity that we need to be considering. And this is exactly what they're looking at here. God has a greater plan at play, but it contradicts the normal way of thinking for his people, so they don't understand it. But Moses does, which means that Moses trusted the plan even when it was difficult for other people to understand it. The other thing we can get from verse 25 is that Moses trusted the plan enough to act even when no one stood with him. 
Moses stood up for what God wanted to have done, for God's plan and for the action that God needed taken, even when nobody else would stand with him. That takes an immense amount of faith. Sometimes when we are working through our Christian lives, we know what we need to do. We understand that there are bigger things at play and we need to stand up to do the right thing, but sometimes that means that we're going to stand by ourselves. Sometimes that means that we're going to be the only ones doing the right thing in a place full of people that are doing wrong. And we have many examples throughout scripture of people that stood up and did the right thing for God when nobody else did. And we need to follow that example because it's absolutely critical for us to do that. So in verse 25 specifically, just a point of clarification on this, the New King James doesn't make this very clear in its translation, but God is granting them deliverance when Moses kills the Egyptian. The New American Standard says, and he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. So they did not rise up with him because of their lack of understanding. Sometimes other people don't get it. Sometimes other people don't see the plan and they don't trust it because they don't get it. They don't see it. That's okay. That still means that we need to stand up, even if it means that we stand alone. Now, this is really a pivot point in Stephen's sermon. It leads us to the second section. Now, we just examined the right side of history. Who was doing the right things and who was acting in the proper way and what examples should we follow? And from this point onward, the focus is more on the people of Israel and what it is that they're doing and how they are acting. And that's what we'll be looking at for the second point, the wrong side of history, which is uh, from verses 25 through 45. We already saw in verse 25 that the people of Israel were not willing to stand up for God and for the actions that he wanted them to, to commit. And they weren't willing to stand up for the plan that he had because they didn't trust it. Well, there's a number of other problems that the people of Israel had, all symptomatic of that lack of trust. The first one is the infighting and the division that they had, which we see in verse 26. On the following day, Moses appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? And how applicable is this for us today? When we look at ourselves as, as God's people, the body of Christ, and there are petty little things that we have divisions over that ultimately don't matter in the grand scheme of things, in the scope of God's plan, that shows that we don't trust the plan. We're not maintaining the right perspective when we fall into the same trap of, of wrongdoing that the people of Israel did right here. They weren't united for God's purposes and that meant that they weren't useful to him. And that's wrong. When we have a problem that, that we have among our brethren that divides us, that isn't something significant and big, but it's just little things, and it divides us to the point of not being useful to God, we have to quell that out. And we have to remove that from us. Because ultimately, if that's a problem that we're dealing with, we'll never be what we need to be for God. Next, the people of Israel suffered from rejection of God's deliverer. This is between verses 27 through 29, which says, But the one who is injuring his neighbor pushed Moses away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptians yesterday, did you? And at this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian. These people didn't understand God's plan so much that they rejected Moses, the guy that we already said was the man. If anybody could get it done, it was Moses, and they rejected him because they didn't trust the plan, because they didn't understand. The Jewish people rejected God's deliverer, and we can never fall into this same trap. 
Jesus was sent for us as our deliverer from the sins that we have. Moses was sent for them to be the deliverer from the Egyptian bondage that they were in. And we can never reject God's deliverer the same way that they did because rejecting Jesus means that we're rejecting salvation. And it absolutely puts us on the wrong side of history. If we trust the plan, we're going to trust the people that God puts in our lives to work in and to bring us towards it. Then, we know, we know the story, but... Moses leaves. He's gone for 40 years. He comes back into Egypt. He performs many signs and wonders, leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. They cross through the Red Sea. God grants them victory over the Egyptians there. They come to the foot of Mount Sinai, and then we'll pick back up again in verse 39. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai right now. Moses is up in the mountain, and what do the people of Israel do? It says, Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time they made a calf and brought sacrifices to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. So not only does Moses deliver them from Egypt, he successfully does everything that he needs to do for them, then they reject him again. While they're in the wilderness, they've just walked through on dry land in the Red Sea. Their enemies have been beaten. They're being actively taken care of, and they reject Moses again. And then they reject God. They turn back to Egypt. Their hearts turn back to the captors that they had before, and they build an idol, and they start worshiping that instead of God. So the people of Israel choose to reject God instead of serving him while he's in the middle of delivering them from their captors. We need to make sure that in our lives, we trust God. Because if we don't trust him, and we don't trust what he's doing in our lives, we'll fall into this same trap. We'll find ourselves rejecting him and turning back to the life that we lived before we became his people, before we became Christians. If I were to turn back and look at the things that I used to do before I decided to follow Christ and miss them and start doing those things again to relapse into the sin that I had in my old life that I died to, then I'd be committing the same sin that the people of Israel were here. We need to be very careful in the way that we act, brothers and sisters. We need to make sure that we are not living lives like we did before, but rather we live lives as the saved and delivered people that we are from the lives of sin that we led before. We die to that old man in sin, and we need to make sure that he stays dead and that we live life anew for God, trusting his plan. Next, we see in verse 42 that they made offerings to false gods. Not only did they reject God and just kind of push themselves into a vacuum, but then they made an active choice to serve other false gods in the middle of being taken care of by God. Verse 42 says, But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, or the heavenly bodies. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? It says in verse 43 that they worshipped the gods Remphim and Moloch, which, for those, uh, for those that don't know, uh, Moloch traditionally is understood to have received child sacrifices which meant that while God's people were being actively taken care of, there's bread literally falling out of the sky to take care of them. They're being guided through the wilderness. There's water coming from rocks to take care of them. They're being given victory over their enemies. They have a leader in Moses. They have everything that they could need, and they're killing their children for false gods. They're killing their children for these idols that they set up for themselves. When we walk through our lives, 
obviously child sacrifice isn't a big thing here, at least as far as I know. And, but we do, we are given children by God, or you're giving children by God, I'm not. <laughs> but, but we're given a responsibility when, when you are given children. That's something that you have to take care of. And if we take our children and we instruct them and we raise them up, we're offering them to something. So then the question we should ask ourselves is, are we offering up our children to the most prestigious university that we can get them into? Are we offering our children up to the most money-making career that they can find? Are we offering them up to the most enjoyable lifestyle that we can give them at the cost of their souls? Are we sacrificing our children to something other than God? Are we directing our children's lives and the paths in which they walk and the instruction we give them towards something other than God while he's in the middle of taking care of us? It's not a choice that we should make. That's never what we should do. There's a responsibility that we have in every single one of our children to make sure that we give them right back to God and not to anything else. In verses 43 through 44, they defied God while carrying his tabernacle. It says in verse 44, Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. All of these things that Israel were doing, the division that they were suffering, the fact that they were rejecting the people that God sent to lead them, rejecting God himself, making sacrifices to false gods, they did all of this in the presence of God. The tabernacle to the people of Israel represented God's presence among them. The fact that they were special. And they still acted this way while he was right around the corner in some cases. It says at the beginning of verse 43, you, took, you also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Ramtha. They carried another tabernacle of a false god in the same camp that they carried the presence of their Lord. They carried them as equals. They had both tabernacles. When we walk through our Christian life, we can't look at things that we had in our past life, things that we pick up while we're working through the, our time in the world, and carry them as equals with God. The tabernacles of the world are not the same as the tabernacle of God, and we can never treat them as such. We need to lift, them, we need to lift God up as higher, as more important, as something that stands above the rest that we have and not leave him down with the rest of the things that we pick up as we're working our way through. God is most important. And we have to remember that we, as baptized believers, have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a peace and a presence of God in our lives. And if we commit sin while we're like that, God's presence is with us. God, the omnipresent God, is always there with you. And when you commit a sin, he's right there with you doing it. Well, not doing it, but he's right there with you while you do it. Something we have to be very careful of and very mindful of as we make our decisions. And all of this, though, in all of the defiance and all of the evil things that the people of Israel were doing, God kept his promises. In verse 45, it says, And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua, upon dispossessing the, na the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. The people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, the righteous man from the very beginning of Stephen's sermon, received the inheritance that was promised to him. God's people are always going to have their promises kept for them, and God is always going to do what he says he's going to do. The difference for us is, if we act the way that these Israelites act, we stop becoming God's people. We no longer have a promise of salvation in eternity, and we no longer are within God's good graces. 
which means that we can't live this way and still receive the reward. These people, we, we see here that God keeps his promises to his people. And God is going to keep his promise to us so long as we are his people. We'll receive salvation if we're on the right side of history, but it's our job to make sure that we stay there. God raises up Joshua, and God uses Joshua to give Israel their promised land. Now, remember at the start of the lesson, I said that there was one key question that, we were going to, that Stephen was going to be answering in his sermon. That question is, what about the temple, and what about the laws and customs of the Jewish people? And that's what he starts getting into in this third and final section of his sermon. The Jews, Stephen's audience, still don't get it. The Jews don't get it. Verses 46 through 53. David found favor in God's sight, and he asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. God doesn't care about their temple. God doesn't live in their temple. God made the world and everything in it, so if you make him a building out of the earth, that doesn't really matter to him. That's not what God is worried about. These Jewish people lifted up the temple so highly that it was part of their laws and part of their customs that every single year they all had to go and see it because it was such a great building. They loved the temple. That was a huge thing for them. And, God, and Stephen is telling them here, God doesn't really care about that. God doesn't care about our things that we like here. God doesn't care about our material possessions that we find so important here in this life. God cares about us being obedient, which is the next point. God cares about his law, verses 51 through 53. Stephen says, starting in verse 51, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. Now, let's pause here. Uncircumcised in heart and ears to a Jewish audience is a, a real punch in the gut. Remember, that circumcision was the covenant that God gave to Abraham, proof that, it, that they were God's people. And he's telling them that in heart and in ears, they're not God's people. They're not keeping his covenant. And they're not living the way that he told them that they need to live. We need to make sure that in our hearts and ears that we remain God's people. We're attentive to the things that he says, and in our hearts we are following him and that we love him. Because that's what's important to God. God doesn't care about the temple that they set up for him. God doesn't care about the things that we have. God cares about what we do and the state of our hearts. That's what he's concerned about. And that's the focus that they needed to have. Because these Jewish elite were using the laws and the customs to get themselves power and to make themselves influential in the world instead of using those things to serve the Heavenly Father that gave all of that to them. Our focus needs to be on the same thing. His word and following what he tells us that we need to do is the most important thing, and that's what matters to God, not the temple and not our earthly possessions. In verse 52, it says, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Stephen says, which one of God's prophets did you not kill? Which one of them did you not persecute? When God sent somebody to lead you, and God sent somebody to guide you and correct the error that you had, who did you not push away like they did to Moses? 
Who did you not reject when God sent you a deliverer, like when he sent Jesus? We need to make sure that when we receive instruction from God that we don't push it away, that we don't shoot the messenger, and that we don't push ourselves out of these situations where ultimately the right thing that we need to do is to listen to what God has to tell us and obey it. Trust the plan, and that will keep us on the right side of history. Israel rejected God so much that they persecuted his prophets and killed his son. These people had a problem. They didn't get it. The answer to their question, what about our temple, what about our laws and our customs, was you're not taking care of them. God doesn't care about the temple. Don't worry about that so much. God doesn't care about your things. What about our laws and our customs, Stephen? Those aren't God's laws and customs that you're keeping. Those are yours. You need to be keeping what God has given you to do, not what you have decided is best for yourself. And the same message goes for us today. We need to keep what God has given us to do, not what we have decided is best for ourselves. Now, before Stephen can even get to the part where he tells them that they can turn their lives around and repent and they can confess, like Peter's sermon ended in Acts chapter 2, they rush at him and attack him, starting in verse 54, the final application, the conclusion of our text. Verses 54 through 60. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. We'll take a look at two reactions of, uh, that are seen here. Stephen's reaction second, and we'll first look at the audience's reaction. Their first reaction is fury. They're furious with what Stephen just told them. I mean, Stephen called them out. He called them uncircumcised and hardened spirit, said, you're not acting like God's people anymore. You rejected all of the things that God ever did for you, and you never served him in the first place. But God keeps his promises. And that made them furious. He said, they shut the message out, verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears, and rushed at him with one impulse. They didn't want to hear what Stephen had to say anymore. They're covering their ears. They're yelling out, la, 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 you know, and then they run at him, and they attack him. They drive him out of the city, and then they kill him because they hate this message so much. The lesson we can take from this reaction is just that we need to understand the gravity of what it is that Stephen is saying. This is a hard message to hear. This is a hard thing to be told. That these people that were so important to them, Jewish history was so important to the Jews. This was part of how they got to be God's people. It was what lifted them up and made them feel like they were above other people. They were special. They had a certain purpose that they served for God. And Stephen's telling them, you were never what God wanted you to be. You as a general people were never living the way that God told you to live. You're not special because you're not lifting yourself up above the rest. You're still living life like you did in Egypt, and you're still sacrificing your children to false gods. If we're going to be special, and we're going to be called out and different from the rest of the world, then we need to live our lives like we are different, like we are special, like we have been called out to be better and higher than those that are around us because we live closer to what God's plan is, because we trust the plan. Stephen's telling these Jewish people that their forefathers were on the wrong side of history. And he's telling them that they were too, because they killed God's son. If we want to be on the right side of history, we need to be accepting to the word that God gives us, and we need to be active, proactive, and going out and doing what it is that God needs us to do. And that's a hard message to hear, but it's something that we all need to hear and apply. Second reaction is that of Stephen's. Stephen's message is confirmed by their actions. I sort of, I, 
in a cruel way, I like the irony of this. Stephen tells them that, or he says to them, which one of the prophets did you not persecute? Who did you not kill that was giving you the message? And then what did they do to Stephen? They ran him out of the city and killed him because they didn't like what he had to say. Stephen was exactly right in what he said, and they confirmed it by their actions. Like verse 51 said that they resist the Holy Spirit, they shut out Stephen, literally covering their ears, preventing themselves from hearing more of the truth. And then his message is confirmed by the vision that he has. At the beginning of verse 2 uh, of Acts chapter 7, G uh, Stephen, when he's preaching, says that the God of glory appeared to Abraham. And then the glory of God that Stephen has been preaching about to them this whole time, he sees in verse 55. Being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently at, into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen's right. God has a plan. God is bigger than all of the things that we have going on in our lives, and what that means is that we need to trust the plan. Stephen was right. And the last, the last lesson we can take from Stephen is that he preached the truth in love, and he loved them even to the point of death. Verse 60. Then falling on his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Stephen died pleading on behalf of those that were killing him. What a great example of preaching the truth in love. If we want to be on the right side of history, we want to do the right things for God, stand up for the things that we need to, and ultimately receive the reward as God's people at the end of our lives or at the end of time, we need to make sure that we trust the plan. Christians are going to win in the end. God's people are going to win because God keeps his promises. And if we want to be on the right side of all of that, we want to be on God's side, then the only way that we can do that is by trusting the plan. Maybe you haven't trusted the plan in your life. You've had problems with division, or you've been resisting the words that God has told you that you need to follow, and you've strayed from the grace that you need to be a part of. Well, there's an opportunity for you tonight to come forward and confess of that sin, to repent, to turn your life around, and become again one of God's people, because God keeps his promises, and you want to be on the right side of history when history ends. Maybe you're not one of God's people. Maybe you haven't committed your life to Jesus in repentance and baptism for the remission of your sins. Well, that opportunity is also available to you tonight. Whatever your need may be, please come while together we stand and while we sing.